Aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> really. We've been talking about neighboring. This is the last message in our series. It flows out of an experiment that was done out in the Denver area. And it was all in obedience to the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor. And so the question was posed, is it possible that Jesus wants us to love our actual neighbor? Well, this grew out of this experiment then, and a book came out of that, The Art of Neighboring. We're talking about that. And we're talking about us becoming a church that's filled with good neighbors, loving neighbors. And so we've been asking you to do two things, and we'll continue over the course of the year to keep asking you these two things. Learn the names of your eight closest neighbors around you and begin to use them and begin to pray for them. Whatever that might mean. Pray for, for their health, pray for their families, pray for their well-being. The authors of the book, The Art of Neighboring, have laid out a progression here. Uh, moving from being a stranger to an acquaintance to a relationship. In other words, it means going from hi neighbor to hi Tom, hi Sarah. You know, it means getting past the embarrassment that maybe you've been living in your neighborhood for two, three years, and you don't know your neighbor's names. That happens, doesn't it? Okay, it, it is what it is. But realize that they might be just as embarrassed as you are. And so part of loving your neighbor is taking the initiative. Don't wait for them to make the first move. You do that. You know, maybe it's a comment like, hi, you know, we've been here for a while, and I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Or it may be, hey, I've forgotten your name. Help me out here. Thanks. Can I take a little relevant rabbit trail here? I have to chase R square T. Um, maybe that's the way it should be here at church as well. Now, confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. I know a lot of your faces, but I don't know your names. Either, either it's just slipped my mind, or I haven't heard it, but can we just say that that's okay? I'm probably not the only one here that that is true about. But you know, we're embarrassed to ask if somebody is new uh, at Knollwood because then we discover that they've been here for two years. <laughs> right? It happens. But can we just agree to get over that? Can we get beyond that? In other words, let's be genuine in our fellowship with each other. You know, some people just struggle to remember names. Maybe you're one of them. Uh, some of us are involved with so many different people that we're in a little bit of information overload, you know, and names slip by us. Or to be honest, there's some of us here that are getting older. And what happens when you get older, it's a little harder to pull that particular name out of our pointing fingers now, I can see, we, we, to pull <laughs> names out of the hat there. But that happens. But let's just be real with each other, shall we? I mean, let's be honest. I'd love for me to hear as we're walking through in the morning, give me your name again. Give me, what is it again? You know, let's not be embarrassed. It is what it is. And, uh, but let's build that relationship that we have with each other by learning some names here. And then if you introduce yourself and they give you a name, use their name in the conversation. It help, at least it helps with me to stick up here just a little bit. I know it might seem funny. It's a little awkward, a little sophomoric. But it's the only way that we're going to get to know each other. The only way that we're going to move from stranger to acquaintance 
to a relationship. Now, at the same time, let's also acknowledge the fact that we have a limited capacity for many deep relationships. You're just not going to have many. But we can be friendly, and that's certainly been one of the hallmarks of Knollwood Church ever since I came, and even before. But we're a friendly church. So we can take a step toward other people here beyond just the casual greeting, good morning, you know, how you doing? I don't know, but when you address somebody by name, it communicates something to them, doesn't it? It says that somebody cares enough that they're learning my name. Now listen, for some of you, this is a piece of cake. You're an extrovert. You love meeting new people and older people. Um, some others of us are more introverts. We would rather do that. We'd rather be the fly on the wall over there. But let's just make this commitment that we're going to step outside of our comfort zone. And we're going to learn some names here. Um, now, what I want to do this morning is just maybe talk about some cautions, some things that we need to throw in the mix when we're talking about neighboring. Here's the first thing that I want to say. Watch out for assumptions. Watch out for assumptions. You know, we have a tendency to make judgments or assumptions that aren't always based upon fact. So we see our neighbor and we say, hi, Joe, or hi, Mary, and all we get back is an empty stare as they scurry into their apartment or into their house. You know, what's the assumption that we usually make? You know, we say hello and we don't get a reciprocal response. Well, isn't it our tendency to assume the worst? But might it not be that something's going on with them? Maybe they're just incredibly shy. They're very awkward in social situations. Maybe their mind is just filled with something that's going on in their life that your greeting just goes right over. But let's just be careful about making these assumptions. Stephen Covey shares an experience uh, one day on the subway in New York that I think so graphically illustrates it. I've never forgotten that from the first time that I ever read this book, Seven Habits. But I want to just, just share that story with you if you're not familiar with it, because it really does help us to understand and see it. He says, people were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, peaceful scene. Then suddenly a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's papers. It was very disturbing. And yet the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. But we make assumptions, don't we? 
and we draw conclusions that just aren't really based on the fact. You know, just because one of our neighbors doesn't respond as we would like them to, we still need to be friendly. We still need to love them as a neighbor. So be careful about making judgments based on appearances. You know, one of the things you can do as you're meeting people is to try to do it in some non-threatening ways. Maybe your neighborhood has a neighborhood get-together, uh, maybe a Fourth of July barbecue, uh, Super Bowl party, uh, whatever it might be. But, but one of those opportunities where you meet people in a friendly environment. Now, you might, and, and once you start doing it, you might get invited then to come. Your neighbors invite you to come. So let me just give you a warning there. It might be prepared. It might not be the kind of party you would normally go to. You know, it, it, you know, I don't drink and, and in our neighborhood, but we go to, you know, we're invited to go in with neighbors and everything. And I always feel a little conspicuous, a little, a little funny. Um, but I draw a conclusion, don't I? That just may not be true. But we may go into situations that maybe we wouldn't set up. But we go in to be a good neighbor. We go in to love our neighbors. Jesus had that same issue. Would you take your Bible, if you have it, and uh, turn over to Luke chapter 5. If you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1095. Luke tells us about one of these parties that Jesus goes to. Luke chapter 5. And I'm going to start reading in verse 27. Luke 5, 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a great company of tax collectors. Remember, these are the most reviled in the nation of Israel. And others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus went where he was invited. No, he didn't sit in judgment on their choice of food or drink. It was no problem for him, for him to sit with those that the religious leaders would have thought were kind of not very nice people. But he went. The same thing happened when Zacchaeus, remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? hosted a dinner party at his house after Jesus had bid him to come down from the tree and go to his house. The religious leaders grumbled. Here's what they said. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus was constantly criticized for the company that he kept, for the places that he went, the parties he attended. Oh, here's another important thing, I think, for us to remember as we ponder in developing relationships with our neighbors. What is our motive for good neighboring? Now, if I asked you that question, one of the responses that I would expect to get would be, well, to share the gospel with them. After all, that's what the pastor keeps telling me to do. I mean, it's the Great Commission, isn't it? We need to be doing that. The authors of The Art of Neighboring quote from the book titled To Transform a City. In that book, Eric Swanson and Sam Williams describe two different motives in building relationships with others. Here's what they wrote. Ulterior means something is intentionally kept concealed. An ulterior motive is usually manipulative. It's when we do or say one thing out in the open, but intend or mean another thing in private. Ultimate means the farthest point to a journey. 
an ultimate goal is an eventual point or a longed-for destination. And then the authors of Neighboring write, the ulterior motive in good neighboring must never be to share the gospel, but the ultimate motive is just that, to share the story of Jesus and his impact on their lives. This is an important distinction for us, I think, folks, because it keeps us from having a hidden agenda. The danger of wanting to pull a bait and switch out there with our neighbors. That that's what our motive is in being a good neighbor, of loving them, is so I can get through my evangelistic presentation. Now listen, better listen up or you're going to walk out of here mad at me. This isn't saying that we shouldn't pray for and hope uh, for opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. Here's another statement that comes from the book. I love this one. We don't love our neighbors to convert them. We love our neighbors because we are converted. Subtle, isn't it? A bit of a nuance. But it helps protect us here. The Apostle Paul gives some good advice that is very applicable to neighboring. In Colossians 4, he writes, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we need to pray for and practice discernment when to share, what to share, how much to share. I mean, we need wisdom in our neighboring. And then the courage and preparedness to share his story through our story when God opens the doors for us to do that. See, I'm not trying to get a, and we, I think we had to watch out for this dichotomy of friendship evangelism and cold evangelism. See, it isn't just letting our life speak for the gospel. That's not evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the gospel, and that requires words. But we want to be sensitive to the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit of when to share, what to share, how much to share. Right? You with me? Here's another thing I want to mention, and that's the setting boundaries. Uh, the truth is you can't fix everybody. In fact, may I respectfully suggest you can't fix anybody. And we need to watch out for what I call the MCS, middle child syndrome. Middle children here, right? We just feel like we've got to go fix everything and fix everybody. Um, I want to read an excellent section from The Art of Neighboring rather than just paraphrase it. I think it'll be a little more exacting. So, so listen to what they have to say about this point. Think of a boundary as a personal property line. It becomes the fence that divides the things for which we are responsible from the things for which we are not. Boundaries define the terms of what's allowable or not in any relationship. When we love God and want to do the right thing, it can be easy for us to forget our own limits. But it's important to establish the norms and expectations in relationships. Now listen, this is just so great. Think of a boundary as the difference between being responsible to a person and responsible for a person. The distinction between the two little words, two and four, may seem like a small nuance, but actually the distinction constitutes a big difference in how we relate to people. Being responsible to people is healthy. It means we are responsible to love them, to encourage them, to bless them, to pray for them, to serve them. 
But being responsible for people is unhealthy. In this case, it means that we mistakenly take responsibility for their well-being, for their finances, for their happiness, for their success or failure, for their spiritual progress, for the strength of their marriage, and on and on. There's a vital difference between responsibility to and responsibility for someone. We are responsible to love, to encourage, to bless, to pray, and to help. But we are not responsible for outcomes, for consequences, for emotions, for reactions, for feelings, or for someone else's choices. I think sometimes we don't engage with neighbors is because we're afraid we won't know how to fix their problems. We won't know how to fix their marriage. We won't know how to fix their kids. We won't know how to fix their work. We won't know how to fix their finances. And so, so with that in mind, that fear, we just withdraw. We choose not to engage with people. You know, in the first message, we looked at the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember Jesus told that parable? And you've got, you know, we just marvel at what the Good Samaritan did as he came upon this man who had been, who had been robbed and beaten and left along the way. And, and we just think about what he did. He picked him up. He treated and dressed his wounds. He took him to an inn. He made sure that it would be taken care of. But he didn't put his own life on hold. He didn't cancel his ongoing plans and stay at the inn until the man was well. You know, he didn't try to find the robbers. You know, the next day he set out on the journey that he was on as he found this man. Um, so I think it's important for us to understand there are boundaries in our relationship as we love our neighbors. Here's the last thing I want you to consider uh, in becoming a good neighbor and a loving neighbor. And that's this, forgive when forgiveness is called for. Relationships can be messy, even with neighbors, right? People are selfish. People are sinners. You are, and they are. And it's likely if you're in a neighborhood for a while, there may be some offense. Somebody's done something to wrong you or that. What are we to do about that? I think sometimes it's appropriate for us to just let it pass. That's going to probably have a lot to do with how severe an offense it was, or the impact of whatever that offense was. But sometimes it's just best to give grace. Grow a little thick skin, okay? Um, other times, though, action is going to be required. It's probably going to require a conversation with your neighbor. You know, loud music, um, kids uh, engaging in wrong behavior or dangerous behavior. It might be hurtful things that are said about you or about one of the other neighbors. But we need to step in when we are the one that's offended and be quick to forgive. Whether or not there's resolution, you know, we're called as followers of Jesus to forgive, to give freely and frequently. Uh, we need to remember now forgiveness is simply releasing the debt. In other words, I'm not going to hold that offense against my neighbor. I'm going to release that debt. So forgiveness is always unconditional. Trust and reconciliation is always conditional. That'll always be based on whether the offender sees what they've done and turns away from that, apologizes, and deals with that. 
The Apostle Paul is writing his letter to the Romans, and he, when he comes to chapter 12, he makes a shift here and begins to talk about the practical outworking of our relationship with Christ. Let's go over to Romans chapter 12. If you've got the Seabank Bible, page 1205. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, and actually, uh, you turn the page, I'm going to start reading at verse 17. Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now, here's the key. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you're offended, forgive. Now, if you are the offender... And that can happen in your neighborhood. Seek an opportunity to address the situation. Be quick to apologize. Seek reconciliation there with the others that have been offended. And allow God to use this as a growing element in your faith, in your life. So, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. What would happen if every one of us strove to be that kind of a neighbor, to really love our neighbor? What would happen if we all became better neighbors, more engaged neighbors, more loving neighbors? Is it possible that God could use that to transform relationships, to transform neighborhoods, to transform communities? Could he use our neighboring to open up doors to share the good news of Jesus and what he's done in our lives? And maybe God will use this to authenticate the power of Christian witness. We watched a video clip the first week in our series. It was of the pastors in the Denver area who started with this idea of neighboring. Uh, they wanted to make a difference in their neighborhoods. Uh, the Arvada, in one of the suburbs of Denver, the Arvada assistant city manager said to them, from the city's perspective, there isn't a noticeable difference in how Christians and non-Christians neighbor in our community. I wonder if that would be said about us here in Northern Virginia. And this is what drove these pastors to think and to pray about what they and their congregations could do. And out of that beginning grew the art of neighboring. In the second year of offering the series to others, more than 50 congregations in that community participated. Uh, sometime after that, they received an email from that same assistant city manager who had challenged them to be more loving neighbors. And here's what she wrote. I've been working in the city manager's office for 13 years. This is the first time that I can remember going through an entire winter without receiving a single request for assistance in shoveling their driveway. 
No one has asked for help for themselves or an aging parent. Not one call. Maybe this is a coincidence, but I wonder if this is because of the neighboring movement. I guess there's no way to know for sure, but I thought you'd be encouraged. Boy, that must have been encouraging to them and to the Christian community at large. Here's the thing. God has called us to be obedient, to do what he asks us to do, to do what he requires of us. And then we leave the results to him. God will never hold you accountable for the actions of others, only yours. So love God, love our neighbor. That's the great commandment. That's what pleases God. That's what he asks us to be and to do. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much that you are a God that has reached out to us, that you took the initiative, that you have loved us before we ever loved you. And you model for us what it is to give ourselves to others sacrificially, unselfishly. Lord, would you empower us to have the courage to know our neighbors, to serve our neighbors whenever that opportunity presents itself? Would you help us to demonstrate the love of Christ to them? And would you also then make us open and sensitive to opportunities that we have to share the good news of what you've done in our lives? Lord, may we truly, as we love you, love our neighbor and be a good neighbor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.